This is the first in a series of podcasts about investment management and how we at Williams Investment Management approach it. I am Williams. I've been a private client stockbroker for over 30 years. We look after clients' portfolios ranging from £30 million to £5,000. Our founding principle is to put clients first and manage their capital as we do our own, in contrast with how much of the investment industry operates. I'm Robert Ash. I started my career in stockbroking in the city in 1984 and joined Williams Investment Management in 2005. I manage self-invested personal pension schemes, uh, investment portfolios for individuals and charities and trusts across the UK in keeping with our philosophy of managing client capital as we do our own. I'm John Newsom. Uh, I started my uh, stockbroking career in Harrogate in 1985 with Stancliffe, Todd and Hodgson. I then moved to Kaywood Smithy and Co, where I met Robert and Duncan. Since uh, 2007, I've been in partnership with them within Williams Investment Management. My role within the business is to deal with the research and strategy and our modus operandi with regard to investment is to buy businesses that we wish to hold forever, quality businesses with sensible balance sheets and high returns on capital. I'm Ian Shuttleworth. Uh, for over 40 years, I practiced as a, as a solicitor in Leeds and in my latter years in Harrogate. And I have been a client of Williams Investment Management for over 11 years. Since I retired from the law in 2013, I've been a consultant with the firm. When people come to me, they are slightly concerned in that they're not sure whether they need an investment manager, a stockbroker, or a financial advisor. So, Robert, how would you answer their question as to what are the differences between those three types of advisor? Uh, that's a very good question, Ian. I mean, in the in the good old days, I would always have referred to myself as a stockbroker. But I think nowadays that almost implies all a stockbroker does is buy and sell shares, which is not what uh, we solely do. It would be fair to say that we would describe ourselves as investment managers in that we select uh, shares principally individual shares and managed funds to purchase and hold rather than uh, and we have we, we are regulated to do so which is the key difference I think between us and uh, independent financial advisors who are not as far as I'm aware able to uh, recommend individual share um, you said investment managers stockbrokers and financial advisors financial advisors didn't you are you saying that, for example, that the word fin the words financial advisors cover a, a multitude of sins because it's a, th there isn't necessarily professional qualification involved? In my view, independent financial advisors are, in many cases, far from independent. So they will possibly be tied to various funds. We, however, are totally independent in that we can advise on uh, shares, investments, bonds, gilts. What we can't do is, and we're not 
regulated to do so is advise on pensions. Um, we do, however, manage pension fund money, but there's a, a, a very defined difference. And, and but the three of you are actually all qualified as stockbrokers, aren't you? Uh, yes, indeed, we are. Um, we have we're we're long enough in the toothy and to be uh, mem old old fashioned members of the London Stock Exchange, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore. But I think if you were to ask any of us, we are very proud of the fact that that is indeed what we were. And that's now changed into being um, members of the Securities Institute. When I um, introduce to potential new clients, um, they often ask the difference between an IFA and an investment manager. And the analogy I use is that your financial advisor is like um, a, a GP. You know, a financial advisor can offer mortgage advice, they can offer protection advice, they can offer pensions advice, and they can offer investment management advice and other things. I think the, the point is, is that an IFA is a general practitioner who spreads his time over various disciplines and therefore cannot be the type of experts which we are in the solely in investment management. We spend all of our time dealing with investment management. We do not give any consideration to pensions advice, protection advice, mortgage advice, etc. In a big area, you're going to the horse's mouth, the person who invests the money for you, which is a specialist area. As I say, you wouldn't want the GP to do open heart surgery upon you. You'd want the specialist to do it. And it's the same basis. If I, my memory serves me right, in the past, we've used the phrase that we are not a one-stop shop where you know, other people are. So if somebody comes to us and says, I want some life assurance, we say, we don't know anything about life assurance, but we know someone who does, and his name is Joe Bloggs ditto pensions ditto mortgage advice you name it so we are experts i would say in the field that we concentrate in it's it's the same thing as duncan's consultant um, analogy the next question is when people come to you they're they will be slightly embarrassed perhaps as to whether they are bringing too little for you to invest and this is often a delicate subject. So do you have a minimum level um, of, of potential investment? So John, what would you say to that one? I would say that uh, the unlike most places, we do not have any minimums. Um, we think it's not a sensible way to look at matters. Uh, what's very important to us is that we have uh, that, that a client understands exactly what it is that we're attempting to do and that we're on the same page. If we're not on the same page, we'd rather not have them as a client. Um, it's very important that we, uh, we share an understanding as to what we're attempting to achieve and that you know, we buy into the same values. Um, we do not want necessarily the next client that comes through the door. It's not what we're looking for. So the size of the client is not that important. What is important is that there is a meeting of minds. And, and therefore, you'll spend some of your time managing expectation. Is that the case? I, I think 
especially with people who don't have that much experience of investment, I think it's fair to say we would always try and uh, under-promise and over-deliver rather than the other way around. Uh, clearly, when it comes to investment, equity investment, there, there are no certainties. Uh, you are taking the risk of investing in equities uh, in order to obtain a level of return that over a sensible period of time can justify itself and the risk that you've taken. Do you explain to people the difference, therefore, between investment and speculation? Yes, yes. Investment is having looked at a business and made a decision to buy it and then looked at the valuation that you may have to pay in the marketplace. If you were holding that business for a sensible period of time, do you believe that a or an acceptable level of return might ultimately come to the fore? Uh, that, I would say, is investment. Uh, speculation is hoping that something you bought might go up. I think firstly, you have to look at a business and, and therefore they have to understand. And, you know, we were talking about good companies and she said, um, what's a good company? And so I said, well, it's a business that if you put resources into it, it can, it can earn a decent level of return. So we use the example of a bank account, you know, not, not now, but in the old days, you know, you put money in the bank and you earn 6%, let's just say. Um, and then we said, so a good business might be able to earn 20%, let's say, and above pre-tax return on capital. We would call that a good business. And she immediately got it. She wasn't an investor. Um, she just wanted to understand what it was that, that, you know, what is a good business? And as soon as you said that, she said, oh yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Our average client is roughly 350,000 pounds. We do have some large charity investments for multi-millions, and we also have some small legacies for children who are sort of only just been born. That shows the, the depth of what we do. But I also think that things like ISAs, perhaps at, at this point, I mean, okay. we are ISA managers, um, and we uh, uh, ISA managers and administrators. We endeavour to get people's money put into ISAs as quickly as possible so there's no further income tax to be paid and no capital gains tax under the current regime. Um, the direction of travel with taxes is going one way in our opinion and therefore making use of your ISA allowances and making use of your capital gains tax allowances could become more prevalent as time goes by. If somebody brought money to you they might bring it in circumstances where they've realised that their building society, bank, national savings bonds are providing very low rates of interest. So as they are accustomed to seeing interest on their money, would they expect you to invest all their capital in investments straight away in order to carry on seeing all their money working for them invested? Or would you hold some money back to invest if the market dips? I mean, there are various points. The first point I would say is that um, we get a lot of inquiries because people are very disappointed with the level of interest which they are earning on their cash deposits. But 
if you invest the money, and it doesn't matter whether you're investing it with us or any other uh, type of uh, investment, be a property, etc., there is risk to capital, and people have got to be willing to accept that risk. Um, if you do not want any risk, there is only one place to leave your money, and that is in the bank or the building society and suck up the ridiculously low rates. If you are prepared to take a, at least a five-year year view um, and you uh, have the right circumstances, which in my opinion would be that you've paid off your mortgage and all debt, um, then it may be appropriate for you to start investing money. And if you were to ask us to invest the money, um, then we would invest some of the money straight away and we would then want to invest the remaining money when we felt suitable opportunities um, materialise. The COVID um, pandemic um, has shown the world just how stock markets can be. And there have been plenty of opportunities um, over that period to invest money um, wisely. So Duncan, if, if, if some money came to you and the investor had not used his or her ISA allowance for that tax year, would you talk to them about splitting the investment between an ISA and uh, a non-ISA? Yeah, I mean, on the assumption that they, they're a UK taxpayer, um, then uh, yes, um, to me, the first port of call is to make use of individual savings accounts. Um, our charges are the same, regardless of whether um, the, the money is held within an individual savings account or within a, within a, a general portfolio. And it also depends what time of year um, when somebody's come to us, because if you uh, come to us sort of in the run-up to the end of the tax year, then I would be saving some of the money uh, to subscribe to the individual and, savings allowance. And do you look, when considering an investment to be in an ISA or outside the ISA, do you look at the yield on that investment, given that the ISA earnings are tax-free? Yes, I mean, with, without a shadow of a doubt, um, you always try and place the higher yielding investments within the ISA. Um, it makes so much more sense to do that. Robert, how do you charge for your services? So, yes, we uh, charge uh, a couple of different ways, one of which is called fee only, where we literally man levy a management fee based on the amount of funds we look after for clients and we levy that uh, each quarter plus VAT. We also offer, and that, that would be with no, no commission charged on whether we buy or sell investments. The alternative is that we charge a mixture of the two. So we charge a fee and commission. So the fee in this case is less than fee only, but obviously we have commission on uh, purchases and sales. That's the principal way in which we, we charge for the vast majority of our clients. So if somebody brought some money to you and, they, and you bought some shares in, say, for example, Unilever, that you would charge a commission on the share purchase and, and then having installed the Unilever into the person's uh, funds, that, that would then generate 
a management fee after the initial commission. Is that correct? Precisely, yes. And is it the case that at Williams, you are, in the vast majority of cases, looking at things to be purchased for the long term so that you're not churning clients' investments, thereby generating a higher level of commissions? Yeah, uh, yes, indeed it is. I mean, we're all long enough in the tooth to know that the only people that really benefit from buying and selling shares on a regular basis, to use your words, churning, are in fact the investment manager. And that's no way to build a business. If I did that for you, Ian, you would soon think, well, hang on a minute, um, Robert's making lots of commission. Are my investments aren't really going anywhere? So I don't think this is the place for me to be. I see. People who are have never invested before, it doesn't matter who you uh, who you speak to, but nowadays you have to be supplied with a cost of charges information before you invest. And the, the rules changed a couple of years ago, forcing all financial advisors, all investment managers, however big or small, uh, to provide a, a full details of all charges down to the last pound so you can always ask for uh, that information from us and you'll be able to compare it to any other firm furthermore all clients have to be furnished annually with uh, details of every single charge their account has incurred including third-party charges from investment managers so you are now able to compare like for like it is a mandatory requirement and if your current financial advisor or investment manager is not doing that we're in breach of the regulators rules the next question this is coming to you john um so you manage investments in stocks shares funds and gilts now a lot of people don't know the difference between these things so how would you best explain that well shares are in essence, part of owning a company. A company might have 100 shares in issue, it might have 10 billion shares in issue. But the point is that if you own shares, then you are a part owner of the business and you take the risk and the reward of being an owner of that business. So it's perhaps somewhat open-ended, but in general, the risks of owning equities will be greater than owning gilts. Gilts represents the, the debt of the UK government. The UK government in hundreds of years has never not failed to pay that debt. And that debt will pay interest uh, every year uh, until it is then redeemed. So that is in general a safer investment, but the income that comes from it can be known, unless we're talking about index link gilts, which we'll leave, I think, to one side. But with a, with a gilt, it, it is a bond, it is government debt, and you know to the penny what you will receive if you hold it uh, until it's redeemed. So it's a safer investment. It's debt rather than the owning of equity, uh, which is owning a piece of a company. And loan stocks are debt but that that is the debt that is issued by companies so they are similar to gilts in the sense that it is a fixed interest investment and if you hold to redemption you know to the penny what you will get 
but as a general rule, the debt of companies will demand slightly higher and sometimes much more than that, higher interest rates to compensate for that extra risk. Because of course, a company could go bust, it could default on its obligations, whereas the government in essence can't. Because even if the government did have economic or financial problems, it can always literally print the money to repay your guilt. So in nominal terms, they could simply say, here's your money back. What the real value of that money is, if they've printed it, is a different matter. But as a, as a rough rule of thumb, a company debt will pay a higher level of return than, than government debt to reflect the higher risks that are entailed. Thank you. And you also will invest for people in a fund. And as I understand that, it could be a business which buys other businesses as investments. Yes. And I, I realise there will be lots of different types of funds and you will advise your clients accordingly as to which might be best suited for their, their investment uh, plans. Yes, uh, I think it's sensible to think of funds, collective investment vehicles, whether we call them UKIPs, whether we call them unit trusts, whether we call them investment trusts, they are collective investment vehicles and they, in essence, offer their mini portfolio or in, in their own right. So uh, we tend to use them in situations where we would like some specialism, where it's not so easy for us to access that market. So for example, if we wanted exposure to India, we would do that via a fund. We would not go and buy Indian equities. Now we might buy stocks like Unilever that have significant exposure to India, but that's another way of doing it. But as a general rule, if we wanted a specific exposure, whether it was geographic, whether it was product, whatever it was, and we felt that it was more difficult for us to do that than by buying individual equities, we would do that via a fund. So another example is there are quite a few regulations involved in buying US stocks. It's not that we couldn't buy US stock, but, but it, it is easier to do it via a fund mechanism than it is by buying the individual equities. So yes, we use them. We tend to use them to hit a certain kind of specialism where it is more difficult for us to do it. Um, and, and that's how it fits in with, with our investment philosophy. Typically, the smaller portfolios are predominantly invested in managed funds. Also, some clients don't like the specific risk associated with direct equity holdings. So regardless of their portfolio size, they are solely invested in funds. Thank you. So the next question then, when people invest money with you, do you invest it as you decide or do you work on single instructions for each purchase from a client okay each client is different and each client is each client's circumstances are different and they're all treated individually we don't offer a managed portfolio service we don't offer a one-size-fits-all approach we sit down listen to the client's objectives and then come up with a, a strategy and we then tailor people's portfolios to their requirements. 
Um, so we manage the client's portfolios for them. Occasionally, the client will want to make an ad hoc purchase, and we're quite happy to accommodate that if it fits in with what we're able to do for them. But in general, my advice is that if people want to use an execution-only service, then they really should be using one of the national firms um, for that. We really only offer a management service for clients' investments. So, Robert, if you invest money for clients, how often do they get to know how their investments are performing? And if they want to draw some of their money out, how do you deal with that? Well, from a regulatory point of view, we are obliged to produce four valuations a year, plus an end of year tax pack that comes out in, well, after the end of the financial year, but normally it's by mid-May. So that's from an obligatory point of view. On an ad hoc basis, any of our clients can ring us up or email us at any point and say, I'd like you to send me a valuation, email me a valuation, pop one in the post. What we always try and uh, impress upon people is that they they haven't actually said goodbye to their money. It's still their money. So if the roof blows off or if they want to buy uh, their son a, a lovely car, they must come to us and say, well, you know, I need to raise £10,000 or have I got £10,000 sitting as cash? And one of the many beauties of equity investment is that it is very easily accessible. So when we sell a share, the funds are available within three working days. And for somebody who has to fill a tax return by using your services, at the end of the year, they will get a certificate and will not have to send in lots and lots of extra dividend mandates. No, that's absolutely right. So in the good old days, folk used to have their own share certificates and keep them in a drawer at home. And that meant that dividend counterfoils would be sent to them and they had to collect them all at the end of the tax years, put them all in a big envelope and either send them off to the revenue or send them to their accountant. These days, virtually all shares are registered in nominee names. So we have a nominee company. So if I have shares indeed, which I do, they're not registered to Robert Ash at his home address. They're registered to the nominee name individually designated to me. So I know that they are mine and everything is electronic. So the dividend payments come through electronically and there's no such thing as a paper counterfoil anymore and we produce one bit of paper that you can either uh, send to the revenue at the end of the tax year or send to your accountant. Is it the case that by using that type of service you don't get bombarded with annual reports from from the companies with which you're invested? Indeed so. So I have clients who probably have 60 or 70 different holdings. They're Admittedly, they're very wealthy, but can you imagine how the postman had to struggle struggle up the drive virtually every day of the year delivering thick annual reports and other documents? Now, these days, if your stocks and shares are in nominee name, none of that happens at all. And there are very few companies now that give their shareholders benefits. So it's not as if you're foregoing anything, is it? Correct. I think in our agreement, um, there is actually a, a section saying, even though there are some companies that do give shareholder perks, we don't pass them on. So, okay. So, so, Duncan, how would you describe your range of clients? 
so the range of clients which I look after are private individuals. I have clients who, one client who I've looked after for 30 years, and we have trust funds, we have charitable trusts, we have pensions. So there's a whole range of different type of clients who we manage investments for. Thank you. Your clients, do they come to see you? Do you go to see them? Would you, do, do you travel all over the country to see your clients? Assuming there are no COVID regulations. We like to see clients in person as much as we can. And we, indeed, we like to show them our offices because we're proud of the fact that we uh, have a, as an understated office that has a nice little brass plaque on the front. There are no glitzy flagpoles or anything like that, which gives them the right impression we feel. If people are further away than simply being able to pop into an office in Harrogate, we're always very willing to go and see them. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not a Yorkshireman, so I come from the southernmost reaches of Lincolnshire and we act for a few people down there, go and see them quite regularly. Further afield, we've got people abroad. Unfortunately, I don't get to see them that often, but I'm sure if my partners would allow me, I'd go to France like a shot. And indeed, if people are too elderly to come and see us, obviously we will go and see them. So it's quite important as well from a regulatory point of view that we keep in touch with them as much as possible, because if their circumstances change, we need to know about it. We need to make a record of that. Yes. So I, I actually think that's one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is, is going to sit down with people face to face. We talk about uh, everything and anything. Sometimes it's about the health of their cat. Other times it's about the health of their investment. Thank you. This material should not be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. Investors should seek advice from an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of investments and any income from them can go up as well as down and you may not get back the amount originally invested. Information contained in this podcast was true at the time of recording.